0: Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. In the first episode of our American History series, Sarah Churchwell tells the story of the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson in the 1860s, and the lessons for President Trump today. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19 And they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Sarah, the president we're going to be talking about today, the impeached Andrew Johnson If you look at the lists of American presidents that sometimes are produced by historians and political scientists that rank them from best to worst, Johnson's predecessor, Abraham Lincoln, the man he succeeded, often comes top. But Johnson often comes bottom. It's quite a fall-off. But actually, if you look at the lists that were produced a couple of generations ago, he's sort of ranked somewhere in the middle, and his reputation has fallen. Not so much because people have changed their view about him, he was kind of useless. But they've changed their view about reconstruction. And historians have actually shifted on this. So maybe we should start with that. Say a little bit about what reconstruction was and what Andrew Johnson's relationship was to it
1: to try to do it briefly is a challenge, but we'll do our best. Reconstruction is the period immediately following the end of the Civil War in 1865. It's usually held to have ended in 1876 or thereabouts. And what it was, was the really radical first attempt at civil rights in the U.S. I mean, it was really after the emancipation of the slaves, the Republicans took control of state legislatures in the Deep South. So we need to remind listeners that over the 20th century, the meanings of the Republicans, Republican and the Democrat parties reversed. So in the 19th century, we have to always bear in mind that the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln. It's the party of abolition. It's the party of civil rights. And the Southern Democrats were the agrarian party of the white slaveholding South. So it's reverse of what we're accustomed to thinking about now. And you've always got to bear that in mind.
0: And the Democrats were also, for that reason, the party of state rights relative to the Republicans who wished where they could to use the power of federal government.
1: Exactly. So the Republicans had just fought a war on the basis of the union, on the basis of federal power. And that was part of how the conflict played out. And of course, then any constitutional fight, as we're going to lead up to, is going to partly play out over that question as well. So what happened during Reconstruction was that there was this really quite radical attempt to establish the franchise for Black men. Now, we need to remember that the 14th and the 15th Amendments, they're known as the Reconstruction Amendments, and they were the ones that gave the franchise to Black men. They explicitly only gave the franchise to Black males. And it's important to say that because it sets up other kinds of uh, historical consequences, mostly about the fight for uh, women's rights down the road. So the 14th Amendment is the first to introduce the word male into the U.S. Constitution to restrict rights to males only and to explicitly exclude the franchise from women. But the 14th and 15th Amendments give rights to black males. And they importantly say that the uh, franchise cannot be denied on the basis of color, race or previous condition of servitude. That's the 15th Amendment. So what they're trying to do there is to say, obviously, right, that you can't say you you can't vote just because they used to be a slave. You can't say that black people can't vote to try to stop racial discrimination. That was the most sweeping of the reforms and, of course, being a constitutional amendment. But there were lots of efforts on the state level as well. People sometimes forget that these efforts were successful enough that there were black legislatures in the South. There were black senators. Black men were running for Republican office and winning office in the South. At the same time and relatedly... In 1866, a ragtag group of disaffected white supremacists in Tennessee decided to push back and they called themselves the Ku Klux Klan. And that white supremacist group started to spread across the Deep South. In the early years of Reconstruction between 1866 and 1871 to deny blacks precisely that move toward the franchise, and they murdered some of these black legislators in cold blood, in fact. So the pushback was very violent and very real. And the fight over Reconstruction basically kind of plays out like that, where you have— black people struggling to claim their franchise. You have certain white legislators trying to uphold the promises of emancipation and abolition, including the iconic promise of 40 acres and a mule. The key thing in Reconstruction, everybody recognized it It was completely obvious. You have to give black people property and a step onto the socioeconomic ladder if emancipation is going to have any real effects. You have to give them the franchise and you have to give them some way to earn their living. And those were the basic promises. And so for ten years there was the struggle to try to to try to get white Southerners to to live up to those promises and to try to force them in various ways to force their hands. And that's why the assassination of Lincoln and the ascendancy of, of Johnson to the presidency was so incredibly consequential. It actually was probably one of the most—people know how important the assassination of Lincoln was, and they often don't realize that the concomitant side of that is how important the Johnson's presidency was, because Johnson was an unre, unreconstructed, to coin a phrase, uh, White's sub- Supremacists from Tennessee, and his entire presidency was to overturn these attempts at enfranchising black people.
0: We'll come back to Johnson because he's going to be the main subject of this in a minute. On the historical revision, as you said, the blinkers of white historians, Reconstruction in that period I talked about where Johnson was thought to be a kind of middle ranking president was thought to be essentially the imposition of outside or foreign rule almost on the South by these aggrandizing Republicans in the North. The revision now is that actually Reconstruction was an attempt to deliver civil rights that was stymied by racist Southerners. But for a long period of American history, Reconstruction was seen not just to be a failure, which it was in the short term, but also actually a completely unjustified imposition yeah. that's what's changed
1: yeah well and I think more than that, that attitude. has yeah more than that has changed though also because one of the kind of standard lines was that reconstruction was a failure because black people were inept at self-rule part of the white supremacist line and the pushback it was a mythology but their line was that we had to remove black people from government because they were corrupt um, and of course the corruption was completely on the white side right it was consistent with the white supremacist line that black people shouldn't be in government right so they say oh They're no good at this. Reconstruction is terrible. They're economically incompetent. They're politically incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. And this is a disaster and it's ruining things for white people and we have to remove them from office. And that was their defense. One of the things that is Ironic is probably too weak a word for the pain of this irony. But one of the things that is ironic about this historical revisionism is that um, the great black historian W.E.B. Du Bois wrote all of this out for us very, very clearly in his masterpiece called Black Reconstruction in America, which he published in 1935 almost 100 years ago, he lays the whole thing out. So it was right there in plain sight for all of white historians and indeed white America to read had they been listening. But only recently, I'm sorry to say, have people started to listen. And that's exactly what Du Bois does in that book, which makes it so important, is he brings the receipts, as we say today, and shows that black people were actually, because if anything, they had to bend over backwards to avoid corruption. They had to be purer than pure. They knew that. So they actually, had to uphold the highest possible standards. And he shows all of that. And he shows the ways in which vested white interests rewrote that and pulled government away from them.
0: As you say, Johnson was from Tennessee. Part of the reason he was became president was because he was on the ticket with Abraham Lincoln in 1864, an election that people forget that was touch and go. Lincoln could have lost that election. He needed to have, make some concessions to voters who needed a Southerner on the ticket and a Democrat, Democratic Unionist. Johnson could have gone with the South, Andrew Johnson, he went with the Union. That was thought to be a great act of courage. He was thought to be a hero. He was also known to be a drunk. He was a pretty unreliable kind of guy. Uh, His handlers were nervous every time he appeared in public. That's not unknown in contemporary politics. When Lincoln is assassinated, this drunken man who'd shown the courage of going against his tribe becomes president. But as it were, the tribe reclaims him. And he as president, seeks to block Reconstruction. In 1866, there are midterms which strengthen the hand of Republicans in Congress. This is what's going to set up the fight. So you have a Congress which is Republican and some radical Republicans who are pushing emancipation to be delivered and all its consequences. And you have a president who was on the ticket to pander, in a sense, to the South, now in the White House.
1: And now in the position to pander to the South, which is exactly what he proceeded to do. So
0: how did that conflict play out before we get to impeachment?
1: And it is the conflict that led to impeachment. And again, which people sometimes don't always, I think, fully appreciate is that it was Johnson's determination to stymie the civil rights efforts of a Republican Congress that had been voted in precisely to deliver that civil rights platform that led to the inevitable confrontation. And it was a very political confrontation, a fight over really, again, the same civil war fight over what the nation would look like uh, continued to play out after the ostensible end of the Civil War. And some would say we haven't got there yet, but certainly it played out in the impeachment of Johnson. So what happened was Johnson, although he was, as you say, a Democrat unionist, he believed in holding the country together. He was also an avowed white supremacist. So he thought the country should stay together, but black people should know their places and white people should be in charge of it. And that's precisely what he proceeded to do. So going against all of the efforts of Reconstruction, he proceeded to pardon the entire white South, basically. And it's worth pausing and thinking about the implications of that. They had committed treason by any reasonable measure of what you think treason is. The secession was they declared war against the government of the United States. That's what they did, right? So literally the people who have declared war on you and have been your enemy combatants in the conflict that just ended are then the people that you have to figure out how you're going to build a country together with. Now, that is why Lincoln delivers the Great Gettysburg Address, where he tries to do that in 1863, even before the end of the conflict, to say we're going to have to find a way to build this together. And clearly there were some Republicans who wanted to really punish, deeply punish the white South. And we can see why that effort might have backfired and might not have been the most politic thing to do. But Johnson went extreme in the other direction. And he basically said there would be no consequences for white Southerners whatsoever. And he restored their property to them, which is incredibly important. And he basically reneged on the promise of 40 acres and a mule for black people. So the promise that that there would be some redistribution of power, of socioeconomic power, of Property And of legislative power, of, of governmental power. He reneged on all of that. And, and he did it in the name of states rights so that black people were increasingly blocked on the local level from promises that had been made on a federal level. And uh, he pardoned everybody. He restored to white Southern landholders their previous land. Some plantations were restored to their plantation owners. They just couldn't have slaves anymore. But that was the only difference. And at that point, they started to pass what were called the Black Codes. And the Black Codes paved the way for what would eventually be known as Jim Crow, but they were the earliest segregation laws. And what they did was they sought to restore Black people to a condition of slavery in all but name. And that's when you start to get the sharecropping system. So they're determined to hang on to all of their economic privileges and advantages. You know, the, the Black Codes lay the foundation for so much of what we see today. And to give just one example, um, that again, I think not only do most Europeans I meet not, not know about this, but often Americans don't know about this either. To give just one really stark example, when those plantations were restored to people, they would often kind of keep their the original names of the owners. And one of the things that white southerners did during Reconstruction to try to return black people to a condition of of slavery in all but name was to build the foundations of what we now think of as the carceral state. And so what they did was they started passing all of these laws that would criminalize black people in whatever way they could think of basically and figure out ways to lock black people up. And they built state penitentiaries literally on the grounds of the old plantation so that to this day, the Mississippi State Penitentiary is still known as Parchman because it was the old Parchman plantation. That's still what they call it. And I think that's the starkest possible example of what we're talking about and of the incredibly profound legacy that it still has.
0: So the fight that was taking place in the South then is mirrored by a fight that's taking place. At the level of the federal government. And the point of conflict turns on a piece of legislation that's passed by Congress to try and limit Johnson's power. So, as president, one of the main powers that you have then and now is hiring and firing power. Uh, You get to appoint and to get rid of executive officers. And Congress passed a piece of legislation that limited Johnson's power by saying that essentially officers had to serve out their tenure to try and keep some of the Lincoln people in place. And Johnson went against it and he fired Edwin Stanton, who had been a very important member of Lincoln's government. So the actual point at issue in impeachment, along with the wider issues that we'll come to, was that Johnson had broken a law that had been passed to constrain Johnson.
1: Exactly. Only months earlier, right? I mean, it So it's a
0: very specific fight.
1: Yeah. So, yes, they were specifically trying to stop him from firing these individuals and from subverting their overall project, which they again saw as, a, as not just a principled political project, but as the thing that they had just fought the war over. I mean, we also have to remember that this is within a couple of years of the end of a war over exactly this issue. So the stakes couldn't possibly be higher. And they say that we won the war. This is what we were fighting for. And we must implement this. But it's also important to remember that they were fighting, from their point of view anyway, for a further principle, which again has echoes with today, which is the principle of the equal powers of the branches of Congress, because while it is true that the president has the power to hire and fire, he also is supposed to do so with the advice and consent of Congress. And he was consistently overruling Congress's right to approve of cabinet members to approve of these high-ranking members of the administration. And so the Congress was supposed to have a voice, and he was not listening to them. And so part of what they were doing in passing the Stanton Law, and it was called the, the Tenure of Office Act, right? Um, but what they were doing with the Tenure of Office Act was saying, this is also about us asserting these equal prerogatives, of a co-equal branch of government. And of course, although there were ultimately 11 articles of impeachment against Johnson, again, people kind of forget that. They think that the three that have been mooted in relationship to Trump sounds like a lot, and it's not a lot. There were fully 11 against Johnson, but if memory serves, eight or nine of them uh, related to the Tenure of Office Act. So they were kind of delineating that one and saying, this is about you listening to Congress, ultimately. better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
0: We'll come on to the parallel with Trump in a second. Thinking about this, it did strike me that actually the closest contemporary analogy here is not with the impeachment of Donald Trump, but it's actually with what happened in the UK Parliament Around Brexit, just in the last few months, it's another Johnson. There are too many Johnsons in politics. It was <laughs> Lyndon as well. Yeah. <laughs> we won't do that today. Parliament asserted its standing in the UK Constitution by passing a specific piece of legislation, the Ben Act, designed to curtail the power of the Prime Minister. And there was a period it didn't last long, where there was speculation what would happen if the Prime Minister refused? as his namesake, but no relative, we assume, (laughs) Andrew Johnson refused to abide by a piece of law that had been passed to constrain him. And in the UK case, he wouldn't have been impeached as such, but it would probably have gone to the Supreme Court and it would have had to be played out as a judicial process. And that in some ways is closer to the Andrew Johnson case. We'll come on to Trump in a second, because as you say, it's partly about a branch of government trying to establish or reestablish its right to constrain the executive. the executive,
1: absolutely, and that's
0: what was going on with Johnson. Although the last both two, Johnson's. <laughs> both Johnsons, the last two um, articles of impeachment did broaden the attack, yeah, didn't they? they? Did. And, and they basically took him on on the grounds that he was. An appalling process. That he was a bastard. They didn't like I'm it. trying to think of the, the technical, <laughs> political term. They, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. So exactly. So it is a really important point, but also to remember because it might sound then like it's dirty pool to say, well, they were they passed a law just to constrain the president, and then they impeached him for breaking that law. Well, then you might think, well, that sounds like entrapment or something. Like you just pass this law, and then say if you break this law, I get to impeach you. But, Which
0: people would have said about Boris? too. Yeah,
1: absolutely, exactly. But on the contrary, and that's what we're saying is that it's also asserting a principled position about how the government is supposed to work from the point of view of people doing it anyway. I mean, you know, as we're saying, you can, you can argue out the case. But there is a principled position that was being taken and that one can recognize and argue for. They, they pass these laws to curtail a president specifically because that president, in their view, is exceeding his powers before trying to impeach him. So in that sense, we could argue that passing that law was a good thing to do because it was a less radical step than impeaching him. And they were just trying to get him, from their point of view, to act within the bounds of office and to work with them, which he was absolutely refusing to do.
0: It's one of the only two cases to this point. There may be a third coming up where impeachment reaches the Senate and it becomes effectively a trial, the second case being Bill Clinton. Mm. And Johnson does survive Mm. by, I think, one vote. One vote. There are three separate votes, I think, and each time he survives by one vote. So you need a two-thirds majority. So The Senate is Republican controlled, including some radical Republican senators who had come in in 66, but not enough by one. One One of the things that just kept Johnson in place, and this may apply with Trump too, is you get rid of the president, there is a rule about who succeeds him. And in this case, it was Benjamin Wade, who was a radical Republican and would have absolutely pushed reconstruction and for the waverers for the I mean for the radical republicans great but for anyone in the middle there was a kind of better the devil you know yeah thought.
1: absolutely we were you know joking about what the other two articles of impeachment are but again they're worth bringing up they were about johnson being objectionable but it's also worth thinking about what they saw as being impeachable offenses and we should explain that the the constitution gives great latitude to congress it well Some latitude. So probably worth backing up and explaining the the bases of the process of impeachment. The Constitution is very, very clear about how it works. In Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution, it states, The president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So on the one hand, that's quite specific. On the other hand, that whole high crimes and misdemeanors thing has given rise to a lot of question over the years. Then the Constitution says – and we will come back to that in many points, I know – then the Constitution says that only the House of Representatives may bring articles of impeachment against the president, and they basically decide what those articles of impeachment are. And there's been a lot of confusion lately about whether those articles of impeachment need to be criminal statutes, whether he needs to be – actually have have committed a crime, as we would understand it, one that you could be jailed for. But it's not – impeachment is basically about getting fired. And so the same way that you don't have to have committed a crime to get fired from your job, but if you do commit a crime, you're more likely to get fired from your job. You don't have to have committed a crime as such. And ultimately, the House is empowered to decide what the articles of impeachment will be, which is why in the case of Andrew Johnson, nine of the 11 were about being in violation of the Tenure of Office Act, and the other two, somewhat hilariously from our contemporary point of view, I think, although it's actually important, one was for being rude to Congress— And one was for bringing the office of the president into disrepute and into disgrace. And so they just said, he's making it look like a clown show, and we can't have that. And it was because he swore at Congress. It was because he blasphemed on the floor of Congress. It was because he was drunk, as you said. So they were saying, this is a carnival show, and this is not what we're supposed to be doing. So on the one hand, we might think it, as I say, kind of amusing that they would say, oh, he was rude to Congress. We're going to impeach him for that. But on the other hand, what they're saying is something more important about what they think the, about the dignity and the honor that they think the office of the president should have.
0: And if we do draw the parallels with now, this impeachment is proceeding therefore on two grounds. There is the more narrowly specified ground, which is we passed a law, you've broken it. And then there is the broader ground, which is you're a disgrace. Yeah. Something similar is going on. I mean, there's a dance going on with Trump's impeachment. And it's not totally clear you can ride both those horses at once, or at least whether you don't have to at some point decide which route you're going down because they are very different kinds of cases and again Trump has at least in theory broken a law campaign finance law and he's also he's not drunk that's the one thing we can definitely say about him yeah but he is a kind of disgrace (laughs) yeah But which one is it? Do you Mm. have to decide? Do you think politically or even judicially you have to decide? I think
1: politically right now you have to decide. And that's exactly why I think the Johnson case is so instructive, because it shows how much latitude there is for Congress to decide how they want to do it. But those wouldn't fly right now. We can see that they wouldn't fly right now. I mean, right now we have people defending Trump by saying impeachment isn't constitutional. But it's in the Constitution. You know, I mean, we're at that level of kind of brazen, you know, denial of the facts of the case. So clearly what's happened is that um, the reason why Pelosi pulled the trigger is because it was very clear after the details about the Zelensky case came out that there is a open and shut. Airtight case for bribery here and bribery is specified in the Constitution, quid pro quo is a form of bribery. And it is a high crime and misdemeanor as the framers understood it. This is, again, where some confusion comes in because people read that and they think high crimes and misdemeanors must mean really severe crimes, like felonies, or it has to be like the most, you know, but that's not what it means. It's not about criminal statutes. High crimes and misdemeanors had a specific meaning to the framers, which they actually got from English common law. And Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, writes about this in the Federalist Papers. So the Federalist Papers were these series of essays says that Alexander Hamilton, as anybody who's seen Hamilton the Musical will know, that Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay wrote together in order to persuade people to ratify the Constitution. They were trying to talk the American people into the Constitution and saying, this is why we need to do it like this. And so although the Constitution might seem vague to us in some ways, the Federalist Papers give us a lot of information about what, and also there were debates on the floor of Congress, so we know what they were arguing about. So a high crime and misdemeanor meant an abuse by a public official. Only a public official could be guilty of a high crime or misdemeanor. So the high applies to misdemeanor too, right? A high crime or a high misdemeanor. And it was abuse of public trust by a public official. So it meant a crime against society, a crime against the nation that you were sworn to protect. If you're in a monarchy, it was crime against the crown. If you're in a democracy, it's crime against the society, against the people. So it's abuse of public trust. They specify treason and bribery as the very obvious ways in which a public official would be open to that abuse of public trust. And then they say, but we can't specify all the myriad ways in which a public official might abuse that public trust. So it's other abuses of public trust. And in fact, when they drafted it, they said high crimes or misdemeanors against the United States. And then in revision, that phrase was removed, presumably because they thought it was redundant. So what Trump has done by that logic is he has very clearly committed a crime, a quid pro quo extortion bribery crime of trying to use his office to abuse the public trust for self-dealing. I don't have any insight into Pelosi, but it seems very clear to me that that's the moment that they said, right, we have him dead to rights. This is literally what it says in the Constitution. Now, they have the right to drop other articles, and they may well decide to include some of what came out in the Mueller report to say there's also obstruction of justice. There's also intimidation of witnesses. There's also all of these other things that he has done, which are both crimes in the criminal statute sense and in this context, high crimes and misdemeanors because they are abuses of public trust. But they don't have to go down the political route of saying he's a disgrace to the presidency, which wouldn't fly. It just wouldn't be a successful argument. And what they have in a situation in which people are trying to argue that it has to be a crime, they're trying to raise the bar as high as they can. They're saying, well, even if that is the bar, which it isn't in the Constitution, he still crossed that bar. That's how bad it is.
0: So you say it's open and shut? Well, that doesn't, mean that, that
1: doesn't mean they'll win. But, That's but, what I'm but, about to come yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. But, but, but legally and rationally, it is.
0: So in the Johnson case, I keep feeling I need to say Andrew Johnson in case people think I mean Boris. Mm-hmm. In the Johnson case, he was also banged to rights. He had clearly broken the law. Unlike in this case, where the Senate, which will ultimately be where the trial happens, In 1867, 68, after 1866, the Senate was in the opposition camp. It was full of Republicans. And that's the enemy back then. This time, the Senate is broadly friendly to Trump. So the threshold of two-thirds is really, really high. But even in Johnson's case, they couldn't cross it. He was banged to rights. Mm -hmm. The Senate was against him. Couldn't get to two-thirds. Yeah. It looks really unpromising this time because bank to rights, but a hostile Senate, you never know. But one of the lessons from the history of impeachment in the United States is that actually it's almost impossible yeah. to remove the president.
1: Yeah, it is. And this is the issue here, is that where the Constitution does not have any clarity is about the rules for the Senate trial. So basically the way that the impeachment works is that it works it follows the setup, the structure of a criminal trial but it does so using the branches of government. So the House of Representatives acts as investigator, which is the point of the process we're in right now with the Trump process, which is why it's called an impeachment inquiry. So this is the investigative side of things. So they're like investigators deciding whether to bring in indictment, like crown prosecutors figuring out whether they'll bring the indictment. If they bring the indictment, then again, like crown prosecutors, they run the prosecution themselves. Having brought the indictment, the House of Representatives will then act as the prosecutor, against the president. The Senate acts as jury and effectively as judge, really. And then the chief justice of the Supreme Court presides. But he doesn't really act as judge in that he doesn't decide the sentence. He's kind of like a referee. He's just there to make sure that they play by the rules. But of course, if you've got a political chief justice, as some might argue we do, there are questions about uh, what role he would have. But the real open question mark right now is that There aren't actually even any rules that say that the Senate has to bring it to trial, even though it says that when the House impeaches, the Senate shall act as shall act as the trial. But it doesn't say that they have to actually hold the trial. So there are questions about whether McConnell will actually do it. Now, at the moment, the Senate's own rules state that they have to hold the trial, but it doesn't say how long the trial has to take. It doesn't say how seriously they have to take it. It doesn't say anything. And McConnell could try to change the rules of the Senate himself. Because he does have that power. So people don't know how he's going to play it. But one very real possibility is that the House brings it and he – exactly as he did with Merrick Garland. He either refuses to hear it and he just stonewalls them or he says, OK, I'm going to hear it. But they basically just shut it down in an instant and they don't actually allow due process and they don't actually let the whole thing play out. And that is within his power. And it's also, as I've just suggested, he has form on this. It's exactly the way that he likes to play things. The question in my mind is – this has been on my mind since the moment Trump got elected, by the way – is at what point will Mitch McConnell decide that he's a liability? Because the moment that he becomes a liability – and from the Republicans' point of view, Pence is in some ways an improvement, unlike uh, Wade versus Johnson. So we can see arguments for the Senate, this particular Senate, many of whom are either themselves – on the far right side of, you know, the Christian evangelicalism or have a constituency that is very strongly swayed by those arguments and are indeed very socially conservative that they will like a Pence presidency in some ways more than they like a Trump presidency. So one could see that calculus coming into play and deciding that Trump has just become too much of a liability. But Right now, he's giving them the economic stuff that they want, which is even more important to them than the social conservative stuff. So it's hard to see McConnell going down that road at the current state of play. But the situation is so fluid. And given Trump's such a loose cannon, we literally don't know on a daily basis whether he will do something that really does tighten the noose around his own neck to such an extent that McConnell finally decides to cut the guy loose and just says, right, under the bus you go, we're better off with Pence. And we just don't know when that might happen.
0: There was presumably also political calculation in the case of the Johnson impeachment, in that though he was not removed from office, he was basically politically dead. From that point on, he was not nominated in the next election. He was succeeded by Ulysses Grant, who interestingly, in these lists of American presidents, used to be ranked right at the bottom. And now he's moved up because of the revision of the view of Reconstruction. He was also kind of useless in his way, great general, terrible politician. But he was sort of on the right side of history. Exactly. We now think people yeah. thought 50 years ago he was on the wrong side. But it did kill Johnson's career. And that's the other calculation you can make. It's absolutely central, which is, are you better off damaging the president but leaving him in post because what matters is the next election? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, we know that that's the debate that's happening in the media all of the time right now is how does that, how do we weigh out that political calculus? And how do you second guess, you know, what the effect on the electorate is likely to be? And people say things like, oh, after the Clinton impeachment, uh, it actually backfired on the Republicans. So it might backfire on the Democrats. Ultimately, I take the view, you know, yes, this is a political calculation that needs to be made, but it is also a legal and principled one. It is ultimately about the fact that he is in clear violation of his oaths of office. He is in clear violation of the statutes in the Constitution about when a president ought to be impeached. And also because at this point, we're in a situation where their entire defense is Trump gets to do it. It doesn't matter what it says. Trump is allowed to do it. And every time you try to check this man, he and his flunkies and his GOP enablers and sycophants just say, oh, well, he has executive right. He has executive privilege. He gets to do it that way. He, has, Oh, and this isn't fair and it's not right and it's not constitutional to impeach the president. Well, of course, it's constitutional to impeach the president. So where we are now is that he and many people are pointing this out is that they are claiming monarchical rights. They are claiming divine right of king for Donald J. Trump. And so, at some point, the United States has to decide whether this is what we're doing. And, and so, you know, from my point of view, we have an absolute obligation to ourselves, to the people who fought the revolution and the civil war, and to posterity, to hold the line and to say, this shall not pass. This is not who we are. But of course, Mitch McConnell and I do not see eye to eye on this issue. (laughs)
0: Today's episode is the first in a six-part series, all of them we think fit together and will help you understand the politics of 2020 and the election coming up. Next week, it's pornography and the post office. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics.